Welcome back to Six Rings, a six-episode podcast recapping ESPN's The Last Dance, a ten-part docuseries on the legacy of Michael Jordan in the 1990s Chicago Bulls dynasty. As always, um, I am Sean Glennis, and I am joined by Arlen. Hello. How are you doing, Arlen? I'm, I'm well. I'm a little shook by this rat I just saw, but other than that, I'm well. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the, the fifth guest for, of today's podcast. Uh, Soham, how are you? Hey, good. 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 And we have television's multi-hyphenate, J.D. Amato. How are you, J.D.? I'm doing great. Just living life here in New York. So since you're uh, the newbie to this um, episode, kind of want to catch up and see you. First of all, like, what is your... What, what is your... Um, adjacency to the to the franchise and um and then also kind of what are you thinking what have what is what have you been thinking about the the show so far yes so i grew up in the north suburb of chicago that's how arlen and i know each other is um we lived in the same town and so you know i moved around as a a kid a lot and we when we finally settled in chicago that was right around the time when I gained sports knowledge and awareness, and that was right in the 90s during the prime of Michael Jordan's uh, first reign as NBA champion. And both my parents grew up in Chicago, and so my parents definitely grew up in a sports family household. And so, boy, oh boy, were we tapped into uh, the Michael Jordan of it all. So I grew up with a firm, firm appreciation of all things Michael Jordan, all things Chicago Bulls, and... Um, you know, I've been, I've heard tale of this footage coming out. I'm so curious to hear your guys' opinions too on now that we've waited all these years for this footage to finally come out, what, what you think about how much of it was used versus not used. Um, but yeah, no, I'm a huge Jordan fan, huge Bulls fan, lifelong Chicago Bulls psycho. (laughs) Cool. Um, yeah, I, I think we've, we've been discussing this, uh, episode by episode uh, um, talking about like I guess arbitrating how we think the footage is being used or not and um, I I think that we'll have a lot of thoughts on um, these last two episodes because I feel like it kind of changed a bit I I agree like you know I think uh, I at least have been lamenting sort of um, all that legendary footage kind of taking a back seat in the dock so far and um, you know, it's been very kind of foundational, putting all the pieces on the chessboard and, and you know, uh, motorcycle. That was Phil Jackson <laughs> just going by there. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this, this, these past two episodes last night were the first time where I, where I felt like, um, you know, it, it was just a totally different vibe for me. I, I was coming in feeling kind of down on the series um and and Mm -hmm. last night just totally turned it around i think you know there's a lot to talk about but you know scenes like um michael's uh bodyguard john wozniak um the the dude with the curly (laughs) mullet playing that that quarters game like you know on on episodes past we've talked about like the weissman version of this and like you know, scenes like that are like I think the closest we're gonna get to something like this. Stuff like like him and Ahmad Rashad just driving down I ninety four, 
you yeah. know, road I've drove down countless times. Um, the opening, the opening of episode five with the MSG All-Star game, all the locker room, all the, the game footage shot on film. Um, that was the strongest opening of the series so far to me. Um, and, you know, it's, I think now that sort of the scene is set, you know, we know who Dennis and Scotty and Phil and Michael, we know who all these people are now that, you know, hopefully the, like, narrative of 97-98 season, but also just sort of, you know, what The Last Dance is about, as, right. uh, that isn't just, you know, the Bulls generally, Michael Jordan generally, um, is starting to kind of take shape. So, Hen, uh, any, any strong reactions to last night? Um, I think that the, um, the footage that was compiled for, like, the last two episodes was probably the best compilation of footage that we've gotten so far. It was, uh, there was a lot of stuff that, you know, Michael on the golf course and, like, uh, like, uh, Arlen was talking about the uh, the coin flipping gambling thing in the in the locker room like that. That stuff was uh, you know that's the kind of stuff that I was expecting a lot of in this documentary where it was just completely behind the scenes things that they would never ever show. Um, in, yeah, in like an NBA like uh, like tape that they put out. Uh, yeah, right. Like him yeah. cursing in the car about like covering the the Reebok logo um that was good stuff. right exactly yeah yeah uh so I think that the um the compilation of video that we got in these last two episodes was was the best of the series so far but um I also think that I'm not like it kind of broke the original structure of the of the last four episodes where in episode five I wasn't really sure there didn't seem like any like distinct direction that anything was going in. It was just more so, um, it just seemed like, uh, Jason hair. Is that how you pronounce it? Hair? I think it's hair. Jason hair. Oh, okay. Um, well the, yeah, the director, um, he wanted to talk about the legacy of Michael Jordan as a brand name. And it just kind of jumped all over the place i thought um yeah i i thought that uh you know it would have been good if they would have structured it the same as the first four episodes but it 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 was still entertaining as hell yeah yeah episode five it kind of like like you're saying kind of goes into that brand stuff and and um it kind of talks about it or like um pushes a little bit into like we were talking about how it wasn't how it wasn't discussing the globalization of of nba um yeah, and it kind of does that in, in that episode. And then in six, it seems to go full on, like, uh, Michael as, like, a competitive uh, person and sort of um, how he was driven out of basketball, I guess, just because of, I guess, fatigue in multiple ways, like winning and just media stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I was, I was realizing last night that um, some of my favorite moments are just, like, on a visceral level, like, when they give us like why he was like moments where he was motivated by something and then like just did something incredible to watch. Um, that stuff's really fun, but, um, I, I'm kind of opposite Ireland where I was like, and maybe so I'm here in the same boat, but I was kind of like, 
I mean, I, I, I'm like still watching every second, like breathlessly, but I, I kind of just see the cracks a little bit more now and just kind of, I'm just along for the ride. But the opening of, of episode six, where it shows him doing that line reading for, for you don't want to be like Mike or whatever. Yeah. That's kind of where, where I was seeing a bit of the, the Wiseman stuff, especially like something from National Gallery or something where you're getting sort of this behind the scenes type thing. But it, it also is breaking into um, the artifice of his personality and, you know, some of the stuff that we just like ate up as kids. Right. Um, kind of, kind of, sort of like corroded that a little bit, and got to see something that like less canned. Um, and I was like, oh, this is what this would look like if it was done by like somebody who was really interested in, in you know, not just um, pushing ahead this this legacy. Yeah, I think like um, that sequence you're talking about, and I think was the opening of, of episode six. Um, you know, you could call it like the Amy sequence, um, uh, where you know it's like the being what it is to be a perpetual subject. You know, like not not just in this doc, but the case is made like every you know second spent outside of his home. Basically, you know, Michael is the subject of something, of a story, of gaze, of questions. Um, and like just sort of dipping into nothing narrative but just kind of the the vibe or you know kind of the subjective experience of such like like nobody none of us know what that's like you know most a-list celebrities don't know what that level like most recognized guy in on the planet you know and like you know, I'm I'm glad they didn't spend too much time dwelling on it because I think it it would get a little one note, and it's like you know it's not easy to be like Mike, but um, <laughs> like the I I liked what we got. I thought it it was something that was missing and just sort of you know like like most of the rest of that episode um, is humanizing Michael and you know a arguably a negative light with the gambling and and the sneakers comment um but just sort of humanizing him on on just kind of relatable like man i'm i'm tired i don't want to do this i'm 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 ready to stop doing this like like you know what when have you know personally when i've never related to michael jordan what what reason would i have to do that um but this was a moment where (laughs) i i felt um like I, I kind of feel what he's feeling. Yeah, I'll, I'll hop in here and I'll say that, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm, I'm loving the documentary so far. It's, it's a, a welcome respite during these times, and it's something that as a lifelong Bulls and Jordan fan, I've, I've, I'm, I'm going to like no matter what. Right. That said, I think that one of the things that's really difficult about this documentary in general is it's trying to be all things to all viewers, right? And there's a bunch of different strike zones that a story like this can be told in. And like, obviously there's like the show and tell aspects of it, but it's also, you know, there's the cultural subtext, the human subtext of Jordan himself, the basketball subtext, and just like the, the zeitgeist subtext of how that all weaves together. And I think one of the things that's tough is that they're trying to tell all those stories concurrently and necessarily it's going to 
sub- subvert and mean that you're not going to get the full version of any one of those things. And yeah. so I think I fit into a category of person that sort of um, has a baseline knowledge of all of those things. And so I'm like, I'm not getting the one pure, I'm not getting too much new information from any one of those pillars of this documentary in a way that's been a little bit of a bummer. Um, For example, I think for me, there's a version of this documentary where it's living a lot more in this sort of moment to moment, um, verite moments of Michael Jordan as a person. And there's something that's really magical about being able to sort of gawk at this person who is larger than life and seeing him as a human and i think for me and a lot of people i think those are the moments that stand out to us because that's new footage there's also people who maybe aren't super nba fans and so they sort of want to understand for the first time the story of who the bulls were and why the six championships was such a big deal but if you're an nba fan you sort of already know that story and you know a lot more detailed folds about all the players involved you know yeah. I mean, I'm sure any one of us could get into all the details of like, oh, yeah, like this episode, they told the Tony Kukoc story. But it's like, oh, there's so many more interesting details to that yeah. story that they didn't get into that make it so much more heartbreaking and interesting that he's found this home in this also sort of war-torn team. And he's gone through all of these things where he's had literal brother teammates that then he's had to become sort of enemies with in a way and now he's on a team that also has this contentious love-hate relationship that's like that's a context that you sort of only get if you've gone so so deep into the Tony Kukoc story and you're just not going to get that in the seven minute segment about Tony Kukoc in this episode yeah I was I was um I was talking last week about like watching it with somebody who doesn't know about these things and how that that it's almost like tailor-made for that because yeah the stuff that like if you watch it by yourself you go okay i kind of know this and it's fun to, it's fun to rewatch the the dream team practice stuff even if you've already right. you already know that stuff but if you're watching it with somebody else you go oh you gotta you gotta watch this shot or like like that this this is what this meant um and it's kind of fun for that but if you're just taking it in yourself yeah it is sort of like this you know um falling from a skyscraper and trying to count like all the levels um and if it, it, it makes it feel like 10 hours is like nothing um but I think some of the stuff that I didn't know about because I was too young was like the political stuff. And even that is just kind of like, um, you know, barely scratching at, at what's there. Uh, but it, it was, it was still interesting to get at least some sort of context. Um, and then it's nice to like see people on Twitter, like actually share stuff that kind of is like deeper dives into those things. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's well put. It's just trying to be a, so many different things to so many people. And, um, I don't know. In that way, yeah, it is sort of like yeah. I don't need to like. I don't need to hear Justin Timberlake talk about like who is that for? Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know. But. Well, that's I think one of I I am not a. Well, I'll put it this way. I think when you are telling a story via talking heads, it can be really interesting if, as an audience member, the story that you're being weaved is about the zeitgeist and the like total subjectivity of those people but because this doc goes between sort of these objective verite moments and these things that are fact that are being told by these talking heads that again if you get into nba history and the history of michael jordan all the stuff every talking head that you see you know that there's a whole story and a subtext to their point of view that if you don't know all of that 
probably paints a different picture of the story of Michael Jordan than if you already know this information. And that way, I, I end up feeling like this documentary has turned into a bit more of a, a crash course in Michael Jordan rather than it being a, uh, a deep dive into new territory of Michael Jordan. But yeah. that's also going to be a, you know, that's the byproduct of the fact that he owns control over this footage and it is not someone making a film about Michael Jordan. It is Michael Jordan approving a film about Michael Jordan, which, and I don't mean that in a vindictive way against Michael Jordan. I think that'd be everyone's natural instinct is to try to give as broad of an opinion as possible because that will probably feel more correct than leaning into a sort of subjective artistic view of someone that might have been more interesting in this case. Yeah, it's almost like... um... I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like subtext, or I guess like like Michael Jordan's control is like a, has like this parasocial like thing. Or like it's almost part of the documentary, like yeah. that he has all this control. But um, so, Hem, you said you had you were having some maybe serious uh, thoughts or passion thoughts during the episode. Did you want to jump into those? Um. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the one of the kind of completely missed opportunities in that whole thing I thought was the fact that they had Barack Obama who is arguably, I mean, whatever you think of him, like arguably this, maybe this single most important uh, political person of the last like 10 to 12 years and um which you know, one was he again <laughs> huh oh yeah the yeah former chicago resident uh <laughs> barack obama um he they had him uh talking about michael jordan's lack of political um activeness which i mean it's 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 kind of a um a touchy point now specifically because people themselves have become so much more politically active especially with like social media i mean i don't know how much of a gigantic deal it was back then that you know michael jordan wasn't as politically active um but like barack Obama was like the one person who could have literally said anything and held michael's feet to the fire about that because i mean it's clearly something that you know uh he seemed to feel deeply about and people in the black community felt deeply about it um he was the one person i felt like who could have held michael's feet to the fire on it and he just gave a really really milquetoast answer to all all of the prompts and that and i was just like i i don't understand like what he was even saying um i just it was i don't know it was just a weird like why why have him there if you're not going to give him kind of the torch to say everything but i think that's sort of one of the issues of this doc in general is that it's a lot of people being forced to define this person this human being and like you said, Mike, Barack Obama having to be asked about Michael Jordan's politics and how that resonates, it's like, it's such a strange thing that the doc is asking itself to do, which is to define who this person is. And I think my hope was that this was, again, going to 
um, show more footage of Michael Jordan being a human and then let us sort of parse as an audience the story that that told about who he was. But like you said, when you have Barack Obama sitting in a two-camera interview and you're asking him a question about whether Michael Jordan should have been more politically active or not in the 90s, it's like it's it becomes such a loaded mm-hmm. conversation that I think that a lot of the objectivity of the doc, in trying to be objective, it becomes less objective because it's trying to distill and define this person who it almost feels like, I think that's what bothered me about, again, I'm loving the, the, the doc, yeah. but about this episode in particular is that it was trying to show this side of Michael Jordan that was, remember, he's a human, and can you imagine what it would be like to be a human going through all of this stuff, but at the same time, it is doing exactly what they are sort of demonstrating is a deleterious way to look at a human, which is to constantly have to define and put this person in a box and on posters for what they stand for and who they are. So I think that's been hard to see, and like you said, like yeah. that, the Obama thing is a perfect distillation of that, of like, why do we need Barack Obama deciding whether or not Michael Jordan was right or wrong for his political stances in the 90s? It's also funny that he was just like saying, uh, like the two sound bits were Obama saying um, that people of color in powerful situations like our, like, uh, what did he say? Like, um, you can't always say exactly what you want. Like, you have right. to like, t- like toe this line. And uh, basically be like sort of uh, indecisive or, or, or wishy-washy. And then he like does that same thing like two minutes later about Jordan's like own political actions. But it's also not true, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not true that Barack Obama could have. Right, right, yeah. Like when he was president, he, he literally had the power to say and do what he wanted. But he chose not to. Right, yeah. So that that's that's kind of what I was just like – what. That's the kind of ironic thing, though, is it it almost was like more of a confession um, than a (laughs) self-confession than talking about Jordan. At least that that's how I said it or how I read it. Um, But it was it was always going to be interesting how they were going to approach this, especially with the specter of, you know, Jordan's uh, approval on everything, Um, because this is this is a common contemporary critique of Michael. I don't know that people uh you know across the board obviously he was being criticized uh in in all sorts of sectors but um when people look back on his legacy and especially in comparing with lebron now they're like well you know republicans don't buy sneakers and and they they brought that quote up but like that sort that and the gambling which is you know what this episode were about are kind of like like when you're making a doc about like miles davis and you're like it has to be you know this laudatory thing about this uh, great american artist but you can't not talk about the francis taylor stuff and and the abuse of his other wives and so how how they approach that and do it you know i think they're really doing it as damage mitigation you know to mit- to mitigate as much yeah. smearing as possible while still being like well we address this right yeah you know so so they they've gotten that out of the way um it it will be interesting to see what if anything comes back up um in the next episodes about the first retirement um right but um you know the 
you you can't you couldn't not do it and and what jd's talking about this is attempting to be a comprehensive document um so you can't not do it but they did it just enough to have said they did it yeah i it's it's weird um my a friend of mine was asking me like about it uh today like about last night's episode and he was he was like it's so funny how they have to like um how much they had to find something to be critical of him whether it was him not supporting this governor or him gambling with money he has um which is interesting because when you're talking about like whether people actually care about that part of him then or now um i think a lot of like I know my my mom definitely, who was a huge Jordan follower, you know, didn't know or didn't care about like his political inaction, um, and I, I I think a lot of people probably saw that and were just like, yeah, what what he doesn't need to say anything. Um, it's interesting, but are we kind of all in agreement that like if you had sort of control or a magic wand over this, that you wish it was the verite like Wiseman angle or no? So one of my fun experiences of you know working in the tv industry here in new york and los angeles is uh getting to know a lot of people that do a lot of things and i actually have a connection to people that have worked that are working on this doc and um one of the things that i've heard is that there is a some people that maybe are a little disappointed because the footage that they have that didn't make it to the cut is truly truly amazing stuff that they just wish could see the light of day but more jerry seinfeld stuff <laughs> yeah i mean but truly those scenes i think tell more about the culture and story and character of michael jordan than hearing a an author talk about what their theory is on michael jordan yeah, you know yeah. i think I think the scenes that everyone's gravitating to culturally right now from this doc are wet as well are those scenes that um, are showing and not telling us about Michael right. Jordan. Like this, these episodes, it was the, that the game of flipping the coins against the wall is what everyone's talking about and remembers. And not only is that because it's new footage, but it's because that right there is a, a story where you are right. seeing Michael Jordan be Michael Jordan. You're seeing him interact with other people and you go, okay... You're learning things about his character that are, I don't know, just you can't, you can't fascinating. just have somebody. Yeah, you can't have somebody really articulate like the way that his like face moves or his attitude changes in those moments. Yeah, and how he's treating these people that are staff at the United yeah. Center, <laughs> and how he's treating them as equals, but also he's not going to pull punches when he's trying to win money, but he's also competitive. But there, it's like you learn all this about him in this moment, as opposed to when. Ahmad Rashad is telling you what Michael Jordan stood for. You can say or take his word for it, or you can see Michael Jordan himself. Yeah, the um, that scene with with Wozniak, who is his bodyguard, who I think I think he's like ex-military, like martial arts expert or something. <laughs> I've always heard. Um, okay. But you know, the I think aside from the footage thing we've been talking about, my main problem so far with the series is that uh, it's so aggressively narrative it's so beholden Mm -hmm. to timelines and like you know constructing this linear 
um, story about the Bulls and Michael. And, like, it has very few opportunities to just be and breathe. Um, and, and that coin scene, the Seinfeld scene, the Seinfeld scene was so nothing and inconsequential, but just like, you know, there's the, the, the visceral thrill of just seeing them together shooting the shit, but also, um, you know, this unspoken cultural element of just like, you know, our need to, make comparisons uh between you know i'm sure someone called jerry seinfeld the michael jordan of comedy at the time you know like the need to force all these cultural institutions into these um interrelated spaces that you know they really have no business um interacting but like you know just when you reach that echelon of you know, 20 million an episode or 35 million a year or whatever, like, um, just seeing two people with brain brains that have been impacted yeah. by that, just interacting, like give us more, just, you know, nothing, like, <laughs> right. Seinfeld, the show about nothing. I want more nothing in this stock. Um, you know, I could take, I could take a shot of spike and Prince. That's cool. Um, but like, you know, just, just like chill a little bit, like breathe. If, if they talk about the retirement, you know, I hope that they really like settle in that moment and, and, um, you know, explore it rather than just say, you know, Jordan retired. It was weird with Scotty for a season and a half. There was that thing with Kukoc and the Eastern Conference semis against the Knicks. I'll probably talk about that. But, like, you know, like, um, and I, I, I want to ask you guys, you know, I think there's another version of this that's very similar, but is just, you know, a 10, 11, 12-hour movie. Um, and I think that the episodic structure, someone talked about structure going out the window this episode, which, you know, I, I, was, in, I was totally in favor for. I think the structure so far has been super stale. But um, if they had the space to tell one big story, one 10 hour story all together and not chop it up as they have been and, and have these kind of opening and closing beats um, and, and maybe put some things that are going to be like an episode seven, eight, nine could have gone an episode, you know, two, three, four and, and just kind of like, you know, play around a little bit more temporally. Um, it would it would have been a huge benefit also. Yeah, I think it's hard because there is like, this is like the Ken Burns documentary on Michael Jordan. And so I think, I think they're doing a really, um, a really respectable job at trying to tell the entire story as best they can. It feels like if I was, it feels like how I would tell it if I were, you know, at a bar with some friends and someone who didn't know the story of Michael Jordan was interested. I'd be like, okay, okay, so... Yeah. Nine, okay, well, wait. So <laughs> rewind. There's this guy Tony Kukoc, and he and okay, but then his I dad, love that like, about it. I love and I love that about these episodes in particular, where like it definitely had that vibe of just like kind of a fan <laughs> and impassionedly talking about their memories and jumping from thing to thing, and like it was I. I you know, it could have been the edibles hitting right then, but I was like jacked up. I felt like super adrenaline out like oh my god they're, they're doing tony kukach they call them kukach oh my god it's the dream team footage 
what's going on? Like, like that that game, yeah. the scrimmage, right? Like, they call that the greatest game no one ever saw, and here we are watching it, and like, holy cow. So, like, for... But again, we have that doc. Right. <laughs> right. right. Like, we have the Dream Team doc. But, so, so have, do you have thought, are you on the same page as far as, like, what alternative, what alternate version of this you think would be better? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you guys talk about Weissman a lot. Um, I think the way that I mean this would have never ever happened in a million years while well, alive. <laughs> but uh no. <laughs> the um but the Asif Kapadia right. yeah. Yeah. of it, right? Um Kapadia, like who made uh Senna and Amy, he basically took uh he made those his his entire style of documentary is just there are no interviews. There's no uh present day kind of um narration or anything it's just pure compiled footage Mm -hmm. and letting that compiled footage tell the entire story front to end and i think that i mean they had the footage to do that the only thing is is that that would never happen while michael jordan was alive ever it might not even happen after he passes away because we don't know who he's gonna leave the control to um but the thing that i will say is that um the fact that majority of the footage that they got that spurned the creation of this that uh sparked the creation of this doc was from the 90 the 97 98 season was kind of the reason why they had to do this sort of structure because again we compared this a lot to ESPN's other documentary um OJ Made in America but that one was able to go completely linearly from point A to point B because it was focusing on one person's life, which eventually led to his demise and a trial, which already had the structure built in, right? The, yeah. Right. A trial is a trial. It's it's already structural. You don't have to change anything. And people were watching him every night for like, you know, a decade. Right. They were watching the trial, but they weren't watching him before that as much on, like, a national level um, of intrigue. Uh, But, yeah, because majority of the footage is from 97, 98, they're, you know, they have to, I guess, you know, just to, like, create a kind of comprehensive structure for the audience, they have to go from that season and tie it to different points in the past that eventually led to that season, which is where the structure came from. Um, I think from an entertainment standpoint, they're doing a great job. Uh, it's just, you know, there are a lot of factors from the outside that are going to, you know, stop this from being the the dock that it could have been. But there's really nothing you can do about it when you're, you know, yeah. dealing with someone, number one, who is who has control over his own story the way that Michael does. I feel like the best version of this doc is going to be in 15 years when all of the raw footage leaks online and there's just like <laughs> yeah. a 40-hour string out of the best moments. Like truly, I feel like the like D.A. Pennebaker version of this where you have very little context and le- except for the context that you glean from prior research or just you pick up in the moments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But of course they couldn't. Of course ESPN, who had to pay... That's the other thing that is the subtext of all of this, is we're talking this from 
the merits of uh, what I assume, I don't know everyone's histories, I'll speak for myself, and I'll speak for Arlen too, because we have a shared history, <laughs> is um, super basketball nerds and documentary nerds. Like, um, and so we're looking at it from that perspective and what choices we would make just in that context alone. And I'm the type of person who, if I could take a documentary, I would take something from the Stanford Ethnography Lab, give me Mana Kamina or something like that. (laughs) But ESPN had to pay an undisclosed amount of money. Yeah, exactly. But they had to pay an undisclosed amount of money that is probably more money that has ever been spent on a documentary in the history of mankind for this. So they could not take the risk of this being too obscure or um, too non-narrative for... Inaccessible. Yeah, for... Because they're, they're trying to make a documentary that is the most watched documentary in the world. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's their Well, goal. They, they did that also, I should say. It just, it just passed Tiger King, I, I read. Um, but, um, you know, to the counterpoint, um, everyone was going to watch this anyway, no matter what. They could have yeah. done something... Just slightly, um, you know, Soham brought up Kapadia, uh, as I did in the first step. Um, uh, you know, uh, Brett Morgan might be another choice. Um, but, like, um, you could have done something like that that's still very accessible. You know, Asif's films still have contemporary interviews. It's just the audio over the archival as opposed to, like, you know, taking these breaths to actually show the interviews. Um and and I think you would have had the same viewership, the same cultural fervor and event, um, just by nature of it being what it is. Counterpoint to your counterpoint. Having worked a long time in television here and having gone through the treacherous process of trying to get anything made, 90% of all projects is about trying to box out as many people as possible from having their creative wills imposed because a lot of those decisions are going to ultimately be made out of fear and financial security and risk evasion. And a project like this where there is so much money and so many people that probably on paper legally have final say on what is allowed to be in this or not be in this, that there were more barriers than have ever been in a documentary for uh, a director to try to instill some sort of vision because I guarantee you there is probably a version of this doc that is closer to what we were talking about and executives and the manager of Michael's team and this and that were like, hey, this doesn't make sense. Like, no, People won't know why blank, blank, and blank. I've just been there so often in the TV world where um, no one wants to take risks and challenge the audience to be the smart audience that they are that I guarantee you it's just a project at this scale, it would be borderline impossible for them to make this movie that we that we so badly want. But I agree that like, I think that's the goal, but I just think I understand yeah. why that might be impossible. And who knows like how much like Netflix getting in the picture like muddies the water for that too. But Oh my god. The amount of people who have investment and decision making power of this documentary is immense. The fact that anything got made, period, is like a gift from the gods of yeah, do- yeah. basketball documentary. Yeah, I was noticing in the credits, there were, it starts out with like five cards just for executive producers. <laughs> and it's like, you know, like three to five names per card. Um, but 
Yeah, I, you know, I think I think look like like we said, there are five hundred hours of this footage. Um, yeah, Hoop Dreams was made with I think three hundred hours. And that's a three-hour film. You know, I know there is my favorite <laughs> movie ever. Yeah, in in this yeah, yeah, somewhere, yeah. 100%, right? You 100%. know, but so so it is super frustrating that this what we're getting isn't that because this is the only thing we're ever going to get probably you know 15 20 yes. years but you just right? gotta, like let go yeah and just enjoy yeah it, like, and yeah. and when i just let it yeah. like all the chaos wash over me yesterday like i found it enjoying i found myself sure. enjoying this much more than i have so You're far yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and i but think I, go ahead I, I was just gonna say uh go back to sort of like this episodic structure that um I think probably does hamper it. I mean, like, I know we're trying to sort of get past this sort of like wish list thing, but uh, it is really interesting to think about this without those those certain that certain structure imposed upon it, uh, that weekly thing. Um, and another thing, um, and then I'll hand it back over to you, JD. But uh, I wonder if like I don't know. We were talking about like who gets Jordan's stuff when he's gone, like his estate uh, and his assets, but. Um, it would be interesting if when he was gone, like, it was, like, the death of a dictator for some people, and it was just, like, you know, release this shit. I mean, obviously, well, because there's so much money tied to it that somebody's not going to just, like, you know, not get wealthy or not stay wealthy, but it would be funny if somebody was just, like, you know what, I care more about this being, like, away from the legacy that he instilled in all of us and more, more cathartic. Well, I think that's an interesting point that um, someone on this panel here is well served to speak about because I think when NBA players uh, move on in life, either from our mortal coil or from perhaps their homes, there are hyenas that descend and pick apart the things that are left behind. And one of those hyenas is here on the call with us. Arlen, (laughs) do you want to talk about your experiences of... um, wading through the uh the history of ex-nba chicago bulls players well, well, jd revealing himself clearly as a fair weather listener because uh, we <laughs> we did talk about in the first oh, did ep, you? Uh, the scotty pippen estate sale um I, I will add for anyone listening that that doesn't follow us on twitter i also posted a pic last night uh episode six ended with jordan emerging out of his driveway heading to the united center of uh myself and and some mutual friends of jd and i um having a a, a rendezvous uh portrait in front of the 23 gates at michael jordan's house um but yeah you know i think just look at look at what happened with prince as soon as prince died the estate was releasing all kinds of stuff that from the vault that sure. you know he always publicly stated he didn't want anyone to hear ever so you know i think uh it's it's out of your hands at some point you know i'm i'm the weird thing is that people probably like people felt weird about that because they respected princes and August, but yeah. the people respect it'll, it'll it'll be ravenous <laughs> yeah. here's my question to you guys and again listen arlen's revealed that i have not listened to the full catalog of your episode so if you've already done this exercise stop me I would like us all to go around and put together what our wish list items are that we wish to be dredged from the library of unreleased Jordan things. <laughs> they're, they're all hypothetical because we don't know what they are. But here's, right. here's an example. I think somewhere 
there is a version of the Space Jam plot that Jordan has written out or sketched <laughs> out as like his own pitch as to how he thought it should go. That the network or the studio was kindly like, all right, cool, 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 yeah, yeah, this is really helpful. And then like went to the the writing and producing team and was like, hey, Jordan made these notes, read them. You don't have to take <laughs> them, probably don't, but here they are. I want. I just want more footage of him being a total dick to the players, like his his players, like. But when he's really funny, like the he he wasn't being a dick to Scotty, but uh, that was another example of him just being really funny and taking control of the situation, and also being like light, like he's a he's a, like the same thing with Burrell, like him talking about him being hungover and and just like being with ladies all the time. To like, piggyback on that, that yeah. I think one of the things, one of the relationships that I think needs to be highlighted more that I think I'm seeing the tip of an iceberg that there's a much deeper and broader submerged piece of ice to is I think there's a really interesting Bill Wennington, Michael Jordan relationship yeah. all of this. <laughs> of all the players that like, you know, Bill Wennington had some issues as a player, yet Michael Jordan seems to like weirdly respect him and like pal around with him in a way that he doesn't with other guys. Like he's always like laughing at Bill Wennington's jokes and then like being like right bill like get like <laughs> like sort of like he's like bill gets it like he's maybe not a great player but like i like bill as a person yeah once you get a you know that sweet mcdonald's uh sandwich money you know you're you're in the circle wait was there a bill wennington sandwich? the beef wennington <laughs> I, I think i think it was regional only so so you have no excuses but it existed interesting so Adam, did you have a did you have a um, a wish list uh, from the archive? Um, yeah, I mean, mine actually isn't even. I mean, I would love to see all of like the back, the behind the scenes bulls stuff, which is what um is here. But uh, I want. I've heard so much awful, awful shit about uh how. Michael was uh, when he played for the Wizards and just <laughs> completely ruined Kwame Brown's like brain yeah. and uh, yeah like I I want to see Michael on the Wizards in practice and after like I want to see his reaction after they drafted Kwame Brown yeah uh, well because have you seen the footage of uh, the Jeremy Lin Kobe Bryant Lakers practice where. Kobe is being so awful to Jeremy Lin, like basically just like beyond just like giving him a hard time, like trying to bully him into the ground to not play again. And I have to imagine right. Jordan had those days. I mean, we know he did. Oh, he yeah. punched Steve Kerr in the face, and like, yeah. I think That's there the probably episode, is footage. I've only seen I've only seen Kobe's uh, last season, the practice that like ESPN literally released a video right. of Kobe berating his teammates in his last season in the NBA because they were like dead last in the Western Conference and he was yelling at like Nick Young or right. whatever. But that's the only that's the only one. I, I, I remember him like him like uh, making fun of Kwame Brown's hands or something like that, <laughs> like in a after game. I thought that was conference. Stephen A. Smith. No, I think Kobe was making like said something unless he was like provoked and just like went like with it well you know like yeah. like well, kobe makes it. clear he got everything from jordan so <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah 
Um, if for for my wish list, um, I think JD, you would probably know, but they they taped the SNL dress rehearsal before the show, right? The those exist somewhere. The Michael Jordan yeah. dress rehearsal, because his episode, he already looks like he didn't rehearse <laughs> at all. Um, like, yeah, I, I do remember he's got a great jacket on though. Yeah, for the monologue. Yeah, but like yeah. you know, like. Um, you know, he obviously can't deliver a line without cracking up to save his life. Um, so just seeing, and and there's so many weird, awkward stuff that doesn't work. So seeing what was cut that didn't work so bad that they cut it uh, for the tape show, um, that would be great. There's also a funny thing at SNL um, that I've heard tale that uh, happens especially a lot with people who are not in the creative field where they're just not used to so the way SNL does that they're um, like pitching is everyone like piles in to do this table read and um, people sort of read out their ideas and sort of pieces of scripts and then they sort of make notes on what they're going to actually write and pursue and what they're not. And it's a lot of the celebrity guests gets to make the call of what they want to do or not do or what they liked or didn't like. And there's a lot of people who especially that don't have backgrounds in creative world, their reactions and stuff is like, no, that's not funny. No, that's awful. No, no, yeah, that's that's actually funny. Yeah, you're actually funny. Like, just like so rude, and that I I have to imagine Michael Jordan <laughs> had some bizarre behavior at an SNL table read. If he even, I I could imagine right. Michael Jordan being like, yeah, whatever you guys want to do is fine. Well, that, yeah, that that reminds me of him talking about how cool Phil was to not have practiced during the playoff. Yeah, but uh, I, and um. One thing is, uh, and maybe I can speak for for our past guest Eric Marsh, who might have said this answer: the the Bill, the uh, not Bill Cartwright, but um, uh, who was the point guard in the first three years? The backup point guard, Paxson, B.J. Armstrong, uh, other one, um, Judd Bush, uh, Craig Hodges. No, yeah, Craig Hodges might be the Craig Hodges uh, stuff that we we just haven't seen anything of, but. Um, but one of the things that this exercise makes me uh, reminds me of what I was thinking last night is a lot of times when you're watching something that you <clears throat> really like that's built off of archival footage, um, it's usually something that like oh like you, you think like I, I would never want to have to like go through all this and create this you know if you're watching like a Steve James project like that sounds horrible to like go through right. all that stuff and create and like you know really form this into place. And this is like the complete opposite. Where it's just like I wish I could just sit there in the editing bay and just watch. For I would never go home. Yeah, I, I have I have heard that those who have worked on this had that experience, and each of them went through this process that we are going through fictionally theoretically, but they had the actual footage to be like, no, but this is the thing. <laughs> I could get to do that for a while. It's him playing a tiger electronic toy on the bus this is what have to include this yeah yeah J- jd i don't know if you know but i think i heard that um like the episodes were split up by editor so everything was being worked on concurrently by different editors so um maybe that would account for sort of the different vibe and pacing of of last night's two episodes it's just you know it was different hands on the project do you know yeah i mean i think there was tons of editors involved and yeah i think especially when the pandemic hit they fast-tracked a lot of their 
final creative process. I mean, I think they are still working on the last episodes that right now. Yeah. Oh, uh, they are. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And so I think things were really segmented and I think there was only a handful of people who had the bird's eye view of everything. So I think that's the other hard part is that in order mm-hmm. to pull off a project of this scale on a timeline that is, you know, sped up to a certain degree, like I think it's it's hard to do those deep dives and do those explorations because I think you probably could have spent 15 years working on this doc before you released it, you know, of just going, yeah. well, let's try this version. Okay, well, let's try, let's tell the version through this and this and, you know, mm-hmm. all right, let's, can we get Jordan back to talk about this thing? And that's actually something that I, I appreciate is I think this is some of the best Jordan interviews that have ever been done. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems the most just like relaxed and like himself and most um, just like willing to speak to the reality of things more than he ever has been in interviews. Yeah, I mean, I think from what I've heard, it, it sounds like everyone else, they had, you know, a, a window. You know, Phil gave him like four or five hours. Robin right. gave him three hours or something. Um, you know, we've already seen Jordan in like kind of different settings around what I assume of is, is his house. But, you know, very languid with like, you know, like a drink and a cigar. Like it's it's clear that they kind of had time to sit down and, and shoot the shit and explore with Jordan more so than obviously any any of the other interviewees. Yeah, I heard it was like two or three three hour sessions with Jordan or something. Okay. But uh, spread out over time. Yeah. So that they could like react to what he did, work on stuff, and then bring stuff back to him. Okay. Yeah. All of um, all of Phil Jackson's interview was just one single five-hour stint that right. they had at his house. That's wild. Yeah, because uh, like I mean, they scheduled it, drove to his house in Montana, knocked on the door, and he had no idea who the hell they were. <laughs> and uh, they said, uh, we're here for the ESPN documentary. And he still didn't let him into their house. He just, like, shut the door on their face and then went back. And, like, his daughter was there. And his daughter was like, no, Dad, like, th- these are the guys. You have to let them in. <laughs> so then he let them in. And he was like, okay. And then they just, like, stayed there for five hours. That's wild. Yeah, speaking of Loopy yeah. Phil, I just want to give a shout-out to uh, retired stoner Pat Riley that his his, like five seconds was terrific yeah yeah can we uh can we talk about um the new york knicks my absolute favorite series that the bulls played in the 90s yeah we haven't talked about actual (laughs) which is great it's a a film podcast but um yeah i was gonna ask but yeah go for it yeah i mean so the new york knicks uh to me that 93 team um, was probably the best New York Knicks team that has that has uh, like existed in the last like 50 years of their history. Um, they I loved the way that they played. Uh, the reason is because I just love like that physical like relentless style that just like complete lack of fear Mm -hmm. of anybody else. And like for the bulls, that was a lot of it, right? It was like, Michael always talked about how opponents started to get scared whenever their shots didn't hit. They had less confidence than him. They were always like, just 
you know, hesitant when they played against him, had doubts about themselves when they played against him. And it almost seemed like when the Knicks did that, uh, when the Knicks played them, that was like the one team that just like came out and was just like, I we literally do not give a shit who you are. And that's what made that series like so compelling. And I think that Pat Riley is a major reason for that because mm-hmm. Pat Riley is also probably the only other basketball figure during that era who was anywhere near close to as psychotic of a competitor as Jordan was. Like there was nobody like Pat Riley is somebody who literally in the middle of the Miami heat season in 2005, 2006 just said enough of this shit fired his coach stepped down from his managerial position and said, I'm coaching this team, and then won them a championship that year. Like, that's, (laughs) like, I mean, this is literally, like, Jordan mentality in the the form of, like, you know, a front office guy, and Pat, like, was always like that. So Mm -hmm. um, I think he probably instilled in that team that kind of mentality that, look, you have to just match this dude, like, give no fuck for give no fuck. Yeah, well... (laughs) I also think there is a mythos to that Knicks team that is like fits into the New York persona. I mean, like John Starks is the yeah. New York Nick. Um, yeah, you know the all the again the mythology of this is a guy that was bagging groceries and then got to be on the New York Knicks is like everything that Knicks fans want the Knicks to be. And he doesn't look intimidating, and then you're like, holy shit, I, I didn't know. Yeah, he that, could do that dunk. Yeah, was and he's just insane. Lo- yeah, and he's this little guy. <laughs> that goes toe-to-toe with Michael Jordan, the best in the world, and isn't scared of him and is willing to fight back at him. And I wonder what some of those practices look like between like him and Anthony Mason or Charles yeah, Oakley. I, truly insane. And I think that was – it's funny. During the episode, I got so many texts from um, my like born-and-raised New York friends here that just screen-capped the, the one little shot of the dunk they had and were like, now this documentary is good. Now it's <laughs> now it's making sense. It's right, funny yeah. looking back though, like watching um, those games as a kid. Like I had simultaneously the feeling that the Knicks were our our rival. You know, like it was, and it, it was. It's obviously more than Knicks Bulls. It's it's always been a Chicago New York thing and and you know we're the ones with our chip on the chip on our shoulder and the second city thing the little brother right syndrome. so yeah. um but at the same time there was always complete confidence that we were going to win like i i, right. I never yeah. felt that oh man the knicks might have it this time like um even down oh two well i mean i was a kid and i i believe i believed yeah. in my hero um, but, but you know, the only time I remember having that feeling was, um, and they haven't gotten to yet, obviously, but the, the 98 Eastern conference finals against the Pacers, uh, when they, oh, yeah. when they forced oh, seven yeah. and you know, I was, I was worried and maybe it's just cause I was like <laughs> old enough by that point to kind of be cognizant of what was going on and the stakes and, and understanding, uh, the series structure a little more, but like that, that's the only time I, I, I felt like this isn't in the bag. I wonder if that has an influence on the um, a generation of the Chicago persona is that, you know, we grew up with an actual literal superhero who represented our city and mm-hmm. all of the tropes of like a superhero played out in Jordan. And we never had to see him lose like that in a way that 
I do think probably like change some aspect of our psychological development in a way that's like very interesting and strange. Because um, again, we Jordan was Jordan was not only like one of the biggest figures in the world, but he felt like a quote unquote hometown hero to Chicagoans because it was our city, and so there's this like sort of global self view that happens that I don't think would have happened to Chicagoans of our age otherwise, where it's like, oh yeah, Chicago is the city of the world because we have Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, and he never loses. The, um, you know, kind of rise of Chicago as a global city, if it, if you even can call it that at this point, um, is directly tied to Jordan and, and the Bulls. Uh, I think they estimated that during those years like their value to the local economy was like five billion dollars it was it was at least one one right. billion um but you know so, somewhere in there yeah, which is yeah. wild which is what, when you think of the draft and you think of like the blazers like literally playing with portland's economy they yeah. just didn't know it yeah yeah truly it's yeah. i mean it's fascinating there's um an old school this american life episode that's just called basketball um, that was made during ninety five ninety six, where they they kind of talk about some of what JD is bringing up here of the the kind of psychic impact of having that team being the local sensation of that time. Um, I'm pretty sure it's in the first hundred episodes, but I definitely recommend anyone interested listening to that. I also think it's interesting, and again, this is stuff that is heavily tread territory, so you don't have to go too deep in it. But Michael Jordan is also such a product of the time and. I was talking with another friend, Carmen Christopher, who grew up in Chicago as well, and we were talking about the um, uh, the building next to the highway that would um, paint the mural of whatever Rodman's hair was that week, and it would cause the traffic jams on the highway because people would stop to see what Rodman's hair was going to be, and that was only a thing that existed because obviously the internet wasn't around, and so the way that you found out what Robin's hair was going to look like that week was that for me, my dad would drive home from work and go, Hey, it's yellow with black stripes. I don't, like, I don't no mean way. to be a stickler on this shady. We, we <laughs> did. I did bring this up. Also, I believe from also from stories of my parent driving on the highway while that was up, <laughs> that was only up for a day because it caused such a commotion and a traffic jam oh, on the really? Kennedy that they had to take it down. It was not up for, it was up for way more than a day. I, I don't know. We're, uh, let's six loyal six rings listeners. I'm going to need I, I, uh, some outside I, verification on this. Any, researchers uh with the headphones in please oh. please let me know how uh long or not long this billboard was in existence uh thank you i i'm a truther and also dennis robin lived in that building <laughs> and that was his house and he would fly a helicopter to the united center from there and everyone would gather and wave at the helicopters that went by see the that that's what the billboards would have back in those days. Now we have a giant uh, fire guard box <laughs> built true, billboard yeah. right. been up there for like five years, <laughs> trying to get our get our uh, uh, front office fired, yeah, which had worked. Exactly. Billboards worked. One of my um, instrumental moments as a child was um, some weekends. My dad would, you know, just take me uh, uh, 
without my sisters to go just have a, a little boys a little boys day to we go sneak into the northwestern football stadium and uh, take turns skateboarding down the big you know ramp for the equipment or whatever and then we would go to a uh, there was a, a pet store that had a big tank that had a little shark in it and we'd go look at the that pet store and we'd get uh, orange crushes at the 7-Eleven and it felt like and one time we capped it off by walking by walking into the Warner Brothers store in the <laughs> old Orchard Mall I assume yeah was there yeah. a Warner Brothers store there yeah and guys hold on to your ding dang hats but if who wasn't there but old Tony Kukoc himself shopping for some <laughs> Tweety <Too> Bird shirts <laughs> Highland and, Park Sound. Uh, yeah. That checks out. And Mi- Mr. Kukoc himself gave me a big handshake with his gigantic hand and I think maybe signed my Bulls hat that I was wearing or something. But he was such a nice guy, just a Croatian oh, yeah. man that had lived quite a, quite a rough life now in the cushy north suburb. <laughs> I was just about to drop that line. That was incredible. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, uh, we Life, we so have good. all been waiting for the coach stuff uh, we've been talking about, and and we got what I hope is just the start of it. Um, you know this, but it seem it seems yeah, like they know. covered. Yeah, it, it seems the like it. they covered. It. I I still think they're going to talk about the Scotty benching himself thing uh, during Jordan's retirement, first retirement. Yeah. Oh yeah. right. Um, so they'll talk they about have. him then. But I mean, I I think there'll be more too because like. <laughs> He himself, being interviewed, was only in that segment for like 10 seconds with that iconic line about how, you know, the war was kind of tough. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the we talked about Krauss being the villain in the first episode, the the statement that we would do anything to like stick it to Jerry, like we, we would ruin this future teammate he was drafted i think in 90 or 91 before he was it was a few years before he was actually brought over so they knew he was going to be playing alongside them and that they would just attempt to completely crush his morale only to you know be a thorn in jerry krause's side um just another component of the unspeakably inhuman competitive aspect of michael jordan yeah, I mean that that story, like the the Olympics defense thing, is is one of those like sort of touchstone moments that is always fun to like talk about. But you really do kind of feel for him when he's just like, I don't, I didn't know what what was going on. Like I didn't really have like a say in this, and all, all of a sudden they're just like taking it out on me. I like that they gave him some empathy in the doc too, though, where they're like, Yeah, I don't think these guys realize what kind of life yeah. this guy had lived leading yeah, up to right. this. There, there was also like a very different attitude towards European players back then. There, than there is it's true. Now. Like now, it's like if you're a European player, like it's, it's you're you're the new. Most NBA, people give you yeah. the benefit of the doubt that you're going to be like really good. Right. Like when Luka Doncic came into the league, everyone was like, "Oh yeah, this guy is going to be a stud." Right. And like back then, it was it was more like, "Does this guy even belong in this league yeah. at all?" So it was. Uh, I did a quick search. Um, Arlen, and it it was the mural stayed up for several weeks, but after multiple accidents and numerous citations by police, um, it was ejected off the side of the building. So it stayed up for weeks, several weeks. I'm gonna need you to. I'm gonna need you to forward me that link. <laughs> and they would they would paint the new hairstyles as they came. 
Okay. It's just an so angel so fire. my my yeah my like Berenstein Bears version of it is that the the hair changed <laughs> colors kind of in real time. It was done with with lights uh, being projected onto it, and it was only up for a day. So maybe this is the multiverse colliding. But well, I just remember they would they would start painting whatever his new hairdo was, and my dad would come home from work and be like hey, it looks like it's going to be this color, and that was exciting. Yeah. Also, uh, just some more Chicago history is that at the time, my dad had started his, his own company that he was like one of two people that worked at, and he was um, his one proud, hey, isn't this cool, was that the weird part of you know industrial Chicago that he had this little tiny office building in, the other side of the, the building was uh, R. Kelly's recording studio. <laughs> And uh, that was a great little point of fact as a child because of Space Jam. And then now it's cast a much darker shadow upon that time of sure. my life. Yeah, I'll, I will give J.D. the benefit of the doubt who has proven countless times over 30 <laughs> years that he, he has a much stronger memory than I do. Uh, I appreciate I, that. I was, so I guess if we're, if we're looking ahead, um, well, first of all, I was going to say that, uh, like, I... ESPN like continued playing. I didn't like shut it off right right away yeah. after these episodes. And the post coverage is just like the most. <laughs> it's just the dumbest shit you can possibly imagine. It's like what's what's his name Scott whatever at ESPN talking to like Charles Barkley and Barkley just like talking about it in like the most inane like. It, it, it's it's just uh, incredibly dull, but um, it's like talking about giving these like um, look aheads at the next episodes, and I couldn't make it through. But I know that C- or episode seven, I, I'm pretty sure that that's the Kerr getting punched episode. Okay. Are you saying it doesn't have the gravitas of four people in their apartments <laughs> talking about it? In the yeah. Podcast? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you could do other stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just like, hey, uh, so Chuck, I know that you you know you played against these guys. What do you remember? Oh man, you know, it was it was really fun because it was competitive, but also you know, it's just like uh, it was really tough. It's like wow. So here's my <clears> looking <throat> forward fear: is we are now six out of ten episodes through, and they haven't even started the '98 season really, and that means we really only have three hours left, and. There's a part of me that feels like we've got to probably could have had ten episodes just on that, like the behind the scenes of this, like the whole doc. The whole point is there's this camera crew following Jordan for the '97 '98 season, and yet it feels like we've spent six episodes mostly in archival and interviews and not seeing that footage. So that's the only thing yeah. that worries me a little well, bit. We're, we're, I mean, we've gotten yeah. through the All Star Game, so we're in the back half of the season. I feel like they're they're about sure. ready to start the playoffs. Uh, for that, but they also, yeah, I think they had a card yeah. that said like, like they segued into the playoffs, but we still haven't seen like the. I'm guessing maybe next week they're going to do like um, the Sonic stuff and talk about like how Peyton was guarding MJ and and um, Rusty Larue's backstory. And who were they playing <laughs> so, when Seinfeld was there? We don't even know. I did laugh when he goes, "This isn't gonna work." <laughs> yeah, this is right here, and it's clear that he was like uncomfortable. It's one of those things where. Yeah. Seinfeld, I, I, I know those moments of the, like, celebrity of someone being like, hey, to a celebrity, like, hey, why don't you come back and say hi to whatever? Because they just want to, like, see celebrities meet. And so then it's right. like, 
this celebrity being like, sure, I'll go meet Michael Jordan, but then they don't really have anything to say, and then it's like yeah. clear that they have to start a team meeting, and so it's like, all right, well, I'm gonna, I'll head out now. Like, yeah, I think I think uh, Wayne Knight might have chemistry <laughs> with Jordan. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's interesting that they haven't talked that much. Of, I'm sure that'll be an episode just like about what happened when the Monstars took over <laughs> the NBA that season. I hope there's some footage. Apparently, there are some like legendary practices at the at the WB yeah. court that Jordan had them yeah. build that summer. Yeah. So I hope he got some footage oh, of cool. that. Yeah, he listed all of the players um, in the in his in Michael Jordan's book for the love of the game. He listed all of the players who were there. It was like Reggie, uh, I think like young Chris Webber who had just gotten into the NBA was there too and stuff like that. Um, so interesting. I, yeah, I was kind of I was kind of hoping during the uh, Olympics uh, or not the Olympics, the All Star game, we got a glimpse of Sean Kemp in his Cavs jersey. And uh, yeah. I was ho- I was hoping there's a repeat from the first episode where Jordan's like, yeah, I went in at halftime, and uh, Kemp was just in this room doing all sorts of stuff. <laughs> just uh, I just closed the door and walked away. <laughs> I do, um, you know, we've been talking about alternate versions, and this probably isn't the alternate version of this, but the experimental short doc of my dreams is just cut together Jordan playing a bunch of green screen people on a giant green screen. <laughs> like I've seen stills from behind the scenes of that. Um, and to me, that's pretty right. iconic. But so like, I don't know if I had 30, 40 minutes of just like artfully composed, uh, that, that, that would be a dream come true. You know what I would like? Here's my, here's my, here's my doc that I'm going to make is it is, if I if I had full access, it would be intercut footage of like a horse giving birth, something that's just like this raw, visceral, natural. Maybe it's like a blue whale or something that's like this unfathomable scale of like earthly existence. Intercut with uh, the footage of Michael Jordan playing green screen basketball, but it's only when he him missing shots. So it's just like. Him playing these like green screen people with like felt arms, just like having the ball rim out, and him being like, "God damn it!" and like having to like retake it, and then you cut back to like whatever moaning beast is creating life. Mine, mine is similar. It's just more footage of Johnny Depp doing the footer whacking on a green screen. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, um, <laughs> I think we've hit the logical end of this uh, episode. These two episodes, but. Um, JD, we're happy you came on and talked to us. Thank you for having me. Hope you enjoy the rest of the, the series. Um, if you guys could just track by the end of the series, though, what the last dance and the last dance is, which would, that would be <laughs> the last person to dance and what their dance is in the movie. <laughs> so just by the end of it, you could just report on what the last dance of the last dance is. Has, has anyone danced since Kraus when we talked about last week? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so right now you should, you should have like the like uh, the the leaderboard who has the belt for dancing. So like right now it's probably Kraus. Yeah, I hope no one else because he does. Yeah, maybe he dances again, takes it back. All right. Well, um, like I said, we'll be back for uh, the next two episodes. Um, until then, um, this has been Film Inquiry Special Series Six Rings. Go Bulls. Only the Bulls. <laughs> Only See you guys. the Bulls.
Bye. See ya. Only the one and only. Chicago, Chicago Bulls. Dum 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 dum.